Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive in scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 461 is recorded live August 20th, 2020. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Chilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we should be having a fair right now. Joining me this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Darren, I'm most excellent. Uh, good to be here. Thanks for having me on. And how are you this evening? I am doing wonderful. And to tease something that's coming up in the show, I, I understand that you have some uh, shipwreck-related news that uh, you'll be able to share with us. Yes, uh, I've been working on a few projects up north, uh, which I kind of had to keep mum on somewhat. I did spill the beans somewhat to our listeners, but overall, I had to kind of keep it quiet publicly. But uh, now that uh, my findings are out, I'd be happy to discuss them with you. Very cool. So we're going to rip right on through Scuba and the News, and uh, we'll be able to cover those. So let me pull up my list. You'd think for as much prep as we've done. I would have these, but I've got to switch my monitors around. The first article is provided by Mac, um, and it was talking about the Galapagos marine life in danger. Uh, and, it, and uh, of course, you can't see it on the podcast, but there was a an image that went with this article, and it showed a horizon. So just imagining being out in the water in a boat, and at the horizon you see this series of dots, uh, some of them bleeding together. And those are lights from 265 vessels, which was a Chinese fishing fleet that was threatening the Galapagos. The boats are now operating at the edge of the protected marine reserve, taking fish and sharks from the major migration route between between uh, the Cocos and the Malpelo. And the world is up in arms about it. The fleet of Chinese ghost ships are falsely reporting their location within New Zealand waters while they fished off the Galapagos Islands. Six of the fleet are transmitting false information via their atomic automatic identification system transponders. The Ecuadorian Navy has deployed its limited fleet to protect the reserves, but with little hope of stopping the fishing and protecting animal, and, and, animal, animals traveling past. This includes the largest female whale sharks in 2018. Scientists equipped with thruster units on their scuba tanks managed to make ultrasound recordings of the distended bellies of three of these pregnant giants aiming to unravel one of the ocean's giant mysteries where did they give birth but more research is needed to be untangled the significance of the area of whale shark reproduction unchecked chinese fishing just on the edge of the protected zone is ruining ecuador's efforts to protect the marine life in the galapagos uh, the former quinto mayor rogue savala has said and this is a bbc article i couldn't find the exact article but in the show notes i've linked to another one uh which is pretty much saying the same thing uh, and you know some additional information i like to know is this an every year occurrence and we're drawing you know more attention to it this year because you know chinese china's on the naughty list or have there been some other you think items oh, yeah. going on? 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, Kevin, I'm picking you know, up some uh, I mean, some reverb. Do uh, you have like a transformer or something close to one of your cables? It's Not that I know of. I know we had a fan going a little bit ago. Okay. Is it still going on? Not now, but it, it, it was just uh, you know, about 15, 20 seconds ago. So, uh, yeah, it just. Yeah, my, my connection is not that strong. My connection is not real strong right now either. I've got some pretty good lag going on. Yeah, it, so. it wasn't so much the lag. It was it was sounded more like uh, you had like a microphone cable if you if you got it next to uh, like a power brick or something. It was kind of that feedback hum. Uh, oh, in the chat room they say they barely heard it. So you know, I've, maybe it's my headphones are just happen to be extra sensitive. But of, of course, we'll edit. Will, we'll edit all that out. So. Uh, I will keep my cable away from the transformers there. You know, yeah, um, it's, yeah. it's no, kind of no a personal thing there, but. I'll... Yeah. Uh, All right. And then let's see what's the next one I had on the list. Monster ghost net, net removed from popular Plymouth reef. Wow. I have these way out of order. Uh, this one oh, is that's from what Charity was Today. next on the uh, show notes. Yeah. Well, it's it's in order in the show notes. What I do is I preload them, and then I have the tabs, and then I gotta like shuffle them up because what I do is I as I find the articles, I put them into the notes, and then but I just didn't shuffle. My mistake. Uh, it says a team of ten volunteer scuba divers belonging to the Ocean Conservation Charity Ghost Fishing UK have been back in action after being kept away for months from uh, diving because of COVID nineteen. They responded this week with reports from scuba divers belonging to Plymouth Sound Subaquatic. Oh, now uh, it jumped. Uh, Subaquatics clubs to others to locate and survey a huge net before making plan to remove it. Lost or abandoned fishing gears are a problem in our oceans, estimated 640,000 tons lost in the sea globally each year. Lost nets and pots are known as ghost gear. They continue fishing nonstop. The catch has never landed, and trap fished act as bait for the others. It's a non-stop cycle and wasteful deaths known as ghost fishing. The team brought back the net aboard the diving vessel Seeker before painstakingly unprickling 115 an- uh, trapped animals from the net and returning them to the sea. Most animals are still alive, including a spider crab, lobster, edible crabs, and a large pollock. Despite the scouring, oh, the scorching weather and require for face coverings, a diligent hygiene on board, the team spent two hours following two dives freeing the animals we are so pleased to be able to get back and doing such important work even in times like this the net is huge but on the reefs it's something very difficult to pinpoint exactly where the ghost gear is fortunately we have excellent information from several reports with good coordinates we were able to find it within eight minutes okay and then it goes on so you you can uh, read there and they also have links if you choose to donate to their charity yeah, Eric comments about that's a big net, 200 meters. And so, we're, you know, we're talking about, you know, in our terms, uh, 660 feet here converted to our English archaic numbers. But, yeah, that's that's a monster. Put that in perspective, things as long as the Cedarville is. Yeah. So that's one of our favorite wrecks out here is the Cedarville. Although our tour guide was not real impressed at Nakano Island that, uh, so, oh, yeah, the porch on the uh, Grand Hotel is like 650 feet long. I'm like, you know what? It's not as big as Cedarville. <laughs> they weren't impressed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. 
how, how to win friends. Uh, yeah. Sarasota aquarium breeds coral for the first time. This is out of Sarasota, Florida. Uh, it says we've been documenting uh, coral decline in Florida's coast for the coast, Florida's coral reef. I can't, I can't read. I'm not, hey Darren, I'm not seeing that in the show notes here. Did I not put that in there? Here. Oh, okay. It is. It's just, you know, all right. Okay. I got you. My, my bad. I had the wrong, the wrong link. My bad. Sorry. Okay. I'll shut up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they've been documenting the coral decline in Florida's coral reef for at least the last 50 years. Uh, says Dr. Aaron Muller of Sarasota Moat Marine Library and Aquarium. So if you'd visited Florida reef tact, in the 70s or so, about half of it would have been covered by living coral. Now it's only about 5% is covered in living coral, and that happened within the, just the last few decades. Dr. Muller and her peers may have found a solution, however, by grafting coral buds onto existing reefs and hastening their reproductive cycle. Just a few days ago, her team documented an incident of spawning where star coral reef releases its eggs and sperm, known as gametes, into the water column and on camera for the first time since the team began a project to try and rejuvenate the reefs in Florida and Caribbean waters. The project we're most excited about right now is the fact that our corals have been planted five years ago. We're using the microfragmentation of fusion processes formed for the first time, which has never been recorded in the world actually ever. It's a unique process where we fragment the corals down into one small centimeter-sized pieces and grow them out for about six months prior to our planting, and then we plant them. They grow much faster because of the microfragmentation process and yield viable corals within just a few years. We are dramatically reducing the time to get these corals to be able to reproduce back out into the reef. That's why it's important. That's important because our ultimate goal is for restoration. It's easy to really have the populations of coral back out in Florida coral reef for it to be able to self-sustain. So that's interesting that they're able to do that. Um, so this, the, the, it's probably a technical detail because I've seen where they'll grow coral or they'll kind of tease it to where it will grow. But this must be something lab-based and then bringing it out. So we probably need to have somebody who really understands coral explain why, what the what the difference is between the, the current processes. I don't know. I stopped talking about bringing it early to maturity with all kinds of chemicals. God, kind of sounds like the start of one of those sci-fi movies, you know, and there's been yeah. <laughs> basis there, but I'm sure there's good reasoning for it, no doubt. You know, that Coral coral NATO movie where, you know, the corals go and then they, you know, fly. No, probably a different Yeah, it's, it's kind of not too far like the gene grafting going on in species, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then in San Diego... The boat rental business is booming amid the coronavirus pandemic. They said if you own a boat or even a kayak or jet ski and it's just sitting at the dock or trailer, you may be sitting on some extra income. Business has been, Karina Sanchez searches for the right words, we can't even believe how great business has been. We're so, so thankful for it. Sanchez and her husband are owners of Water Horse Charters in Mission Bay. Opening just last year, they offered scuba diving tours, party cruises, fishing, and whale watching excursions. When the pandemic hit, we were forced to, forced to temporarily shut down by state mandates. But once given the green light to reopen, Sanchez says business has been booming with people wanting to get out and do it safely. I feel like people get a little bit more comfortable going out in the water. Sometimes that's outdoors. 
Oh, sometimes. Yeah. Out in the water. Uh, no, something that's outdoors than having, for instance, a house party or going to bars or something like that. Sanchez connects with many of her customers through the site, getmyboat.com, which is like the Airbnb for boats. There's some data that suggests the average boat is only used 8 to 10% of the year, says Val Streif, uh, who represents getmyboat.com from the headquarters in Minneapolis. And the other time, it's just sitting at the dock and marina. Sturf says Get My Boat has listings from private boat owners and charter services in 184 countries around the world, offering everything from kayaks to jet skis to pontoon boats and yachts. This is a way for people to earn some supplemental income, says Streif. When we're not using the boat for themselves for personal purposes, there are increased regulations during the pandemic, stepping up cleaning, fewer passengers for social distancing, and other steps depending on the boat excursion offered. We require everybody to wear a mask while they're on board, says Sanchez. When they rent a regulator, uh, every time people rent one from us, we make them buy a mouthpiece. Sanchez, the changes aren't hurting business as they've been sold out. They're not the only ones, which is why GetMyBoat.com is looking for more boat owners to sign up, perhaps help themselves to staying afloat during these tough times. I don't know how well that work in Michigan. I know we have a lot of... uh additional kind of uh, excessive regulations. My my hum is back, huh? All right. I don't know. I had the microphone turned off for a while, but... Yeah. Okay, it's gone now. All right. Well, the um, here in Michigan, we have a lot of issues where uh, you cannot take any money for boat services unless you're a a licensed charter captain. I'm not sure how many other states some of yours have that. Uh, I don't know, I'd be kind of leery about actually, you know, <laughs> loaning my boat out. Uh, well, the, 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 those of us who own boats know that you know it's uh, it, it takes some skill to run a boat. It's not like it, you know, same as you took skill to learn how to drive a car. It's a lot of skill in driving a boat, you know, because now you're you got to think you know about being uh, three dimensionally with the depth, and you know, you can you hit rocks and put it up on a reef or something, and your, your boat's all done, <laughs> you know. So. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's uh, that's some of it that would have to be worked out. I, like that was going to be the question I was going to ask is, as a boat owner, do you want to let somebody rent your boat? We see a, no. we we see a lot of jet ski rentals, and mm-hmm. you do that as a business, and you've got insurance on it, and you're just calculating, you know, that the damage that anything that they ding or mess up, you can fix, and you've got their credit card on file, and it's enough to cover it. But you know how many people have you know thirty thirty thousand dollars in room on a credit card for extra charges? Should they uh, sink your uh, you know brand new Boston Whaler or some other vessel? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. It's also as far as the the, the docking and the retrieving, and mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm I'm assuming they're you know using just boats that are already slipped. Uh, you know, but as far as launching, retrieving a boat, there's a lot of skill goes into that. I mean, if you don't yeah. believe me, uh, take a look on YouTube. Yeah. There's some guys, there's some very, very active YouTube channels that just talk about the screw-ups that boaters make. Uh, you know, look at Bonehead Boaters of the Week up there, Broncos Guru. I'm sorry, maybe I shouldn't plug the guy on the podcast, but my gosh, I mean, it's hilarious what's going on with the people that don't oh, know yeah. how to run a boat, well, you if, know. If, I mean, if you want some entertainment, find out where the boat launch is. Get on the other side of the river so when you're laughing, it takes a little bit of effort for them to come and beat your ass. <laughs> yes, uh, and then right. And then you just watch because you've got the, like, let's say you're pulling into the, like a boat ramp. You're going to get on a, on a trailer 
you've got wind that you're you're factoring in. You've got the current of the river going down, like that St. Joe Marina uh, for our boat ramp. That can be a little bit of a challenge many times of the year. You, you're trying to get up there, and if you haven't done it before, that's that's not automatic. And if you have never driven a boat, you have no business uh, renting one. Uh, and even oh, yeah. at, and my recommendation, if you buy a boat, is go. Uh, you know, the uh, Coast Guard Auxiliary typically has courses it's worth taking them just to understand least, the basic safety at least familiarize yourself with the uh the boater safety guide you know that's yeah. something which is available from any conservation officer or any anyone in the dnr uh you can find it online uh, and, and you know that does explain to you what a dive flag is by the way because you know the majority of the, the boaters are not reading that uh yep that uh, boater safety guide because they have no idea what a dive flag is. And <laughs> we see that over and over again, but yeah, Karen Mann will loan her boat out after the, after the, the all the work she's put into to fixing it up. Yeah. It's uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure. Yeah. The, the people who are doing this have got to have some kind of healthy liability insurance policy on it. But once we're doing it with jet skis, you know, jet skis are a whole lot more user friendly than, you know, in this ad they have looks like a about a forty footer um, pictured as far as the the, the ad. No, a fifty six C Ray motor yacht for twelve seven sixty six an hour. Um, and yeah, that's for twelve. You put that by the hour divided that seven sixty six by twelve. That actually gets gets pretty cheap real fast. But my gosh, uh, loaning that baby out that's going to have uh, dual motors in it. Uh, you could do an awful lot of damage in a docking incident that really fast. And, yeah. Well, also, you know, it's, it's, that vessel there, how much fuel does it go through in an hour? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, you know, if you're playing in that thing, I'm sure it's, you know, a, a, you know, a, you know, probably 20 gallons. Well, at least at least 15 gallons an hour. So, yeah. although a friend of mine, no, no more than that, actually, a friend of mine, uh, Jason, he's got a uh, 30-foot well craft with dual big blocks in it and he tells me it's uh a gallon per per motor per mile to run that thing yeah i believe it yeah a gallon per motor per mile yeah so so uh you know maybe, maybe they've got some something in plan like with airbnb uh you know the the organization you're renting it out of has their own insurance so maybe that's something they're offering their they've got an excellent insurance policy that they're able to put through it. And maybe you have to, as the primary uh, boat renter, you have to work your way up, you know, kind of like if you're a crew on a boat, you know, you don't, you don't start to get your captain's license on a 500 ton vessel. You got to work your way up and put some time in it. So I wonder if maybe they, they've got a similar program. Yeah. That seven sixty six an hour for that 52 footer. That doesn't go very far when it comes to making repairs on that boat if something goes awry. Oh no! So I mean, you, you you can do an awful lot of damage real fast in a boat. Uh, you know, and even just in the river, um, just go up and down the river. You know, I mean, uh, gosh, we we banged our antenna on mm-hmm. the bridge the other day, and I'm amazed it didn't break because you know we, we it was dark. We thought we had it down and didn't. But uh, you know, an antenna is a hundred bucks right there. You know, I mean, it just takes nothing to do damage to a boat instantaneously. Well, and then in a river. You have to know what the the channel markers are, where you go in the channels, you know, how deep the boat draws, what its draft is, mm-hmm. uh, any obstacles that may be there. Uh, I know once you get, you know, the, you know, from St. Joe out to Lake Michigan, 
you know, that's a fairly well-documented channel, but there are other spots, you know, uh, between the different dams, there's nothing marked. So, yeah. And, and, and this is our, our backyard. So we've been through there a fair amount and, you know, and we know of the hazards, but people who are, you know, first time in the area are going to have no idea what's out there. And yeah, in that St. Joe river area, you get just, uh, you know, a half mile down from the ramp and you've got an area where you, you, you have to avoid the center of the river because it's only two feet out there. But unless you're a local, you have no idea about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, we were diving up in Marquette a few weeks ago and that's when I found out that, Oh, great. My, blue charts i guess i don't have the card that covers lake superior and uh there are hidden reefs all <laughs> over marquette you know and we're just we're just cruising around and we're actually we're going to a wreck uh the uh, Ludi up there and uh you know we're cruising around i'm noticing yeah it looks like it's getting a little shallow up there but uh the Ludi's in 40 feet of water here right now we go like over a two and a half foot reef, you know, on plane, <laughs> you know, like, oh, yeah, it's yeah. one of those things you just, you watch your depth finder, you're seeing the reef and you're just praying it doesn't get any shallow. And, and we cleared it and all that, but, uh, you know, we had no idea it was there. Obviously the Ludi had no idea it was there either. And that's, that's a, you know, one of the big that's, wrecks. That's, in that's, that's kind of why some of these wrecks are there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, if you're not aware of these, these reefs out there, uh, you know, often you can see them on a sunny day, but you know, sometimes you can't, you know, especially if you're diving Ohio waters, you know, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you, you 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 can do so much damage to a boat real quick. Uh, you know, it's an interesting concept to do an Airbnb for boat rentals. Uh, you know, and it, I'm sure it works in some areas. You know, but uh, yeah, there has to be some kind of a learner's curve on this baby. Yeah, the the other thing I'm wondering about is maybe, you know, we're we're thinking too literal that a boat is meant to be motored. Maybe they're just renting them and partying at the dock. Well, I do know there are boats actually on Airbnb that are in slips in places, which you can, uh, you know, rent for the night, but you don't go anywhere like that. But this looks like it's something, you know, designed to go someplace, I would think, you know. I'm, I'm not paying seven sixty an hour to sit there and drink beer in the boat, you know. So I'm, I'm going someplace, man. Yeah. And if you're, if you're uh, hiring somebody to take you out, I mean, they have to at least have a six-pack. Uh, not the not the <laughs> yeah. beer, not the beer six pack, but the, the what's wrong with the what's wrong with the beer? The coat, the Coast Guard license uh, six pack, which for those that don't know, that's it's uh, kind of an alternative to being a fully chartered boat captain. That's uh, a little bit less than the requirements. Typically, if you've owned a boat for ten years and you're able to put together logs and how you've operated it, you can get your six pack. And I do believe there is still a certification requirement for the boat. And then you're limited to how many uh, people you can bring on the boat. Uh, yeah. yeah, I don't, and, and not non-boaters just don't really have you know, just. You, you need to have someone who's seasoned, who's very familiar with that craft. You can't just jump onto a boat. I mean, I've owned several boats, and I've been boating since I was in my early twenties. And I would be hesitant to, uh, you know, say borrow. Schultz's boat or Karen's boat. And I know Karen, Karen wouldn't loan me, but my boat, she knows me too well, but you know, uh, say she got really drunk one time and handed me the keys. Uh, I, I would want to do that. I mean, that thing would, uh, her, her boat's a little bigger than mine and it handles different than mine. And, um, yeah, I'm well, very seasonal well, boating, but I wouldn't want to jump at somebody else's boat and run yeah. off with it. Heck no. Yeah. Well, how do you trim it? How do you, uh, you know, lower the out, the, uh, inboard outboard? How do you start it? Right. I mean, right. Did you How turn much? Did you turn the fan on before you started it so that 
uh, fuel vapor in there doesn't, doesn't go boom. Yeah, Karen loaned her, has loaned her boat up before, and things have happened. Yeah, I've heard those stories, you know. Yeah, you, didn't you get a back one time without a dive ladder, you know? And I know you've had issues with, uh, oh, I know it's hard to get on the trailer and things. I mean, every boat has a way to work it, which the owner knows about, you know. But whenever you buy a boat, there's always a learning curve in learning, you know, how it handles, how much you have to anticipate the steering. Um, you know, maybe there's some things you do that makes it stall, some things that makes it start up nice. There's all kinds of little nuances to a boat that, uh, you know, you have to own it for a while to be proficient with it. And even when you're proficient with it, things surprise you, you know. I mean, the, the, there have been plenty of days that it's been a real bear to land our boat, uh, you know, to, to, to bring it in the slip or dock it because uh you know it's um the wind changes you know when we were up at Mackinac I was noticing one evening that everyone was backing in their boats in the slip and I've always just pulled it in and backed out but it's yeah it's because the wind direction up there you're better off having the waves hit your bow and roll past the boat than come crashing into your stern all, your stern all night and you know so yeah for the very first time I backed my boat into a slip and uh yeah I'm I'm waiting for the guys to video of me to screw up, you know, but it actually went pretty good. But, uh, you know, everyone's boat handles different. You've got to know the craft. And um, I'm sure Karen handles her boat far better than it would take me a long time to learn how to handle Karen's boat as well as she does and vice versa. So. Yep. Uh, then this next. Yeah, Karen. Go ahead. Yeah, Karen, I was, I was out there on that dive when the stuff went on you're talking about. She talked, yeah, that she, they had kind of a, a boating trip that didn't go well one time. And, uh, yeah, I was out there. That was, uh, that was a day which, uh, it was rough and everything went wrong that day. You know, that, that was a day which we all should have just turned around and gone back in. Cause, uh, yeah, she, she loaned her, uh, boat out to, a to a guy here in town that I will, I will not put him under the boat, but, uh, he's, he's actually a pretty nice guy, but you know, Karen loaned him, loaned him her boat and it did not end well. So, but all right, I'll let you back on topic. <laughs> this is where we go sometimes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, and in here, this one, let's see, what's the location? Uh, but it's a art shop makes a product out of scuba diving tanks. Uh, gold FM rock market was held on a larger scale today. Around 100 vendors showcased a wide variety of handmade crafts, plants, and food. People from all walks of life took advantage of the good weather and making a monthly event at the Suva a success. One that stood out uh, in one of the stalls was lamps and vases made out of scuba diving tanks. This is a product made by Don, uh, was that Decklerk, the owner of Dakota Arts. An employee of Dakota Arts, Junie Rousseau, said the rarity and uniqueness of some of the people visiting the ROC markets are always after. You have to find a way to make use of it. So obviously the top part is really nice for lamps. You can have it with a shade or without a shade in any color you like. We actually are using car paint so it's easier to get whatever color you like. And then the base we can use to pop plants uh, of an umbrella stand or even just whatever you like. So I always like to take a look and see what you can do with those uh, tanks that maybe failed the hydro or the uh, dive shop is uh, shaking their head and won't fill anymore. Yeah, you, you can only use so many ashtrays. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, well, I know Donald Wolf's they've got one they've turned into a gong. And yeah. I know my buddy Tracy, he's got uh, 
bunch of them, you turn into tin to dog dishes. You, you cut the bottom of them off, and you you know you you bevel the edges on them. They can make a pretty cool looking dog dish. <laughs> so, I, mean, uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I've. She has lamps here, and uh, well, you, you could also, you know, make them as like uh, if you had four of them, uh, it could be legs for an end table. I suppose, little, little, yeah. yeah. I mean, you realize that's like a, a thousand dollars in tanks right there, just just became your leg table, you know. But if they if oh, they yeah. failed hydro, what else are you going to do with them there? So yeah, not there's not not a whole lot, so. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, folks, I see people selling scuba tanks, use them for way too much. You buy them brand new for 250 okay? Don't go yeah. buy a used one for 200 okay? Buy, <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't mean, know why. Who, who's buying these tanks? They they want way too much. And uh, Well, you, you see people in the used market all the time. They got these things up for sale. And they, oh, yeah, scuba gear has got to be expensive. It was dad stuff, right? You know, but they got these old 72s sitting there for, you know, 150 bucks a piece, you know, when a 70, you know, 72s have their purposes. Don't get me wrong, but uh, they're, uh, there's not a lot you can do with them, really. So, yeah. yeah. If, if, if the tank's been sitting in the, in the attic for 10 years, you know, it, on the minimum, it needs a hydro. Uh, you know, it, it might be of an alloy that can't be filled. And then you're gonna, you could have to have the valve uh, uh, work done, maybe tumbled. Yeah. yeah, you're referring to the alloy can't be used. Uh, the scuba tanks, the aluminum ones, uh, particularly Catalinas, which are pre 1990, are made of an alloy. Bring that back, Amy. Yeah, which are made of an alloy that uh, can cannot does not pass hydro anymore. So an awful lot of your scuba shops are not filling those pre-1990 tanks anymore. Um, I've got one here that my wife just brought up to me. Uh, we have an old here. It's a steel tank. It might be a 50 or something. It's an old one. But it's actually our our bank, which we uh, – it's for the, the uh, Southwest Mission Water Preserve. I need to get that put into a dive shop someplace. But uh, someone took a – steel tank. I was take a picture, put it online, put it on the chat room here. But it's a, uh, got the uh, Southwest emblem on it. I'm going to bring this thing into Wolf's one time and see if Jim will fill it. <laughs> oh, it's, a, yeah. it's, all been, it's all been doctored and cut up here and everything. Yeah. But uh, Jim wouldn't do it, but, but Richard <laughs> Richard's a good guy, but he, he tends to be so busy that uh, he's not really watching too closely with doing sometimes. Yeah. But uh, yeah, this this is one we have that's been used to turn into a bank. I'll put a picture in here in a minute. So, And then out of uh, North Carolina, uh, students are doing uh, some diving and getting into some archaeology. Uh, it's part of Advanced Field School for Grad Students in Maritime Studies at ECU. Instructors say the Tar River waters are very dark and murky, and students have very limited sight under the water, so they have to document mainly by touch. Expert believe the shipwreck that they are documenting is a schooner or a two-mast vessel close to 60 feet long that's been stuck in the mud since the late 1800s or early 1900s. The students are also using GPS device to help with super accurate documentation of the vessel. Instructors say there are numerous shipwrecks around uh, sites in the Washington area. They believe this ship could have been tied up or brought alongside the old seawall before sinking. There, where they're diving used to be a lumber mill. Yeah, that's that's cool. I mean, we 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 have a lot of those wrecks that uh, you know sank at the dock or were abandoned, um, mm-hmm. but they tend to be in very shallow water. 
and they are uh, nice, easy, squeezy dives. Sometimes you can even snorkel them. They're uh, it's nice to see the school making use of these. Yep. But, um, and and you get a lot of potential bottom time because you're not going to you're not going to go through a whole lot of air at seven eight feet. Well, and yeah, and maybe not even that because you see these two students standing there in the in the picture. You know, they're they're standing with their heads out, so they're probably only in about four feet of water. But <laughs> yeah, if you're going to be down the bottom, you know, doing grids and hey, Karen can talk about this. I'm sure looks like they're doing some kind of underwater archaeology, and she's played around with those kind of charts for, before. I'm sure. But uh, very cool stuff. Yep. Well, that does it for scuba in the news. Like to thank everybody who's in the chat room tonight. We have uh, Derek and Eric and Karen and uh, also Kevin. I see you're in the chat uh, the chat room as well. Yeah, well, I've been you know, I don't know moderating, to taking questions and things, and sharing junk here and there. I'm trying to get this picture to load of my uh, modified scuba tank. Which oh, modified scuba tank. Do not do this at home, please. You know. Yeah. And 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 while you're you're posting that, I do have a plug that's been requested. Uh, there is a nude pod, a nude, gosh, I just can't talk. A new podcast that is out. Uh, they've finished their third episode at the time of, the, of our recording this episode. Uh, it is the Sea Creatures podcast. And I'm going to say it's by Matt. I won't slaughter his last name just out of uh, trying to be nice. And uh, uh, Derek, how often are they recording? Is it weekly? Uh, but uh, they usually have a different topic. Uh, he's done one on some octopus, uh, new to branch, and uh, some other things. So usually sea creatures. Uh, uh, so go ahead and give a listen. We'll have a, a link in the show notes so you can find them. And they're also on, yeah. on Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash sea creatures podcast. Yeah, we had a little bit of a conversation going about that podcast in the uh, pre-show chat, and uh, you know what they're talking about with the uh, the blue octopus. Uh, I would definitely want to download that one and take a listen to it. There, uh, I'm not really a saltwater guy, but I can certainly appreciate the beauty in the underwater animals there. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like a quite intriguing uh, podcast. Well, worth a listen. Yeah, and he says he's got the first nine guests have been interviewed. So. Uh... Sounds like he's got a, well, few, we, a few in the bank, which I, I understand how that goes. I've got a few edited I need to get out. Yeah, we and we're getting back into uh, doing guests here. Um, kind of had strayed away from it for a while. Um, initially getting into the, uh, the uh, Discord format had been a little challenging at first, and but now it seems to be a pretty stable platform. So we're going to get back into doing guests. We have uh, Brennan Baylod. It's going to be a guest on the program here uh, September 3rd. Uh, those of us in the, in the area who do uh, shipwreck research are familiar with Brendan Baylaw's work. Uh, you know, he has a number, a number of databases out there which are completely driven by his research. Uh, he lives over in northern Wisconsin, and he's uh, you know been involved in numerous shipwreck discoveries. He has some ongoing research and projects of his own. Uh, he's going to, you know, he'll be on the program and quite entertaining guest, I assure you. So that'll be September 3rd. Excellent. We're looking forward to having him on. In fact, Brendan Baylod uh, was of a great deal of assistance in my most recent project here. Well, so, well, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and head on into that. Uh, 
can you give us a, I mean, how do you, how do you want to start? Do you want to say what it is? Uh, do you want to tease it and work your way into it or, or kind of go into some of the background? Well, um, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background here. Um, I don't know. It basically started a couple like two years ago. Uh, I was looking on uh, Google earth and uh, believe it or not, there's actually an icon you can find on Google earth for shipwrecks. And it tells you where there are known shipwrecks. And there's quite a bit there in the uh, salt water on the, on the east and west coast that have been logged into Google Earth. But I was kind of surprised there was very little here in the Great Lakes that, uh, you know, popped up under that, that layer. Because, you know, you can always select which things you want to show up on Google Earth. And, uh, you know, there just was next to nothing popping up uh, outside of the Thunder Bay Preserve. Now, those guys have got their stuff in pretty good. Uh, that's mostly done with Noah and Wayne Lusardi, and their stuff was in there pretty decent. But at the Straits, the only shipwreck showing up with their shipwreck layers was the um, an unknown wreck in Mackinac Harbor. And so I put that on my list of things to check out. Um, we actually didn't, weren't able to get up there until uh, part of our honeymoon uh, back in July. And Due to the uh, conditions in the harbor, it's actually kind of a challenging dive. The um, wind direction is generally out of the southwest. And, well, immediately to the east of this wreck is a very large seawall. So, of course, you don't want to put your boat on that. It's a bit far offshore to do a, to do a, uh, to do a, you know, a swim all the way offshore. You could do it, but most of the property, property up there is private. And diving in, the, in that, in those, in that uh, heavily used harbor is probably not a real good idea. But, uh, you know, you say I've made a dive on it, and the, the wreck appears in uh, Dr. Chuck and Jerry Feltner's uh, Straits of the Ma- you know, Shipwrecks of the Straits of Mackinac publication. Uh, it's shown as being the Mackinac Island Harbor Wreck. And wasn't that a lot of information about it? Uh, Chuck dove it back in uh, 1980 to document it. Sounds as though uh, a lot of it was buried at that time. and he didn't uh, believe that it was something that which could be identified because only the bottom of the hull was showing. He measured it. He measured what was visible at being uh, 22 by 100 and uh, just kind of chalked it up as something which couldn't be identified because there wasn't enough there really to, there's nothing visible there to identify it. Plus they did not have records of anything sinking in that vicinity. So uh, in their guide, it's just stated as an unidentified shipwreck, and it's turtled, which means upside down, and uh, not much known beyond that. Uh, it does appear also in Chris Cole's diving guide, uh, pretty much similar wording to what came from Feltner's guide. Um, it was, you know, I talked to different folks about it who, who from the area, and everyone just told me, hey, it's just an upside down boat, really not much to it. Um, go, go, go and dive something else. There's more appealing things up there. So, on our honeymoon, uh, about the second week in July, uh, Amy and I were up there, and I made a dive on it. Unfortunately, Amy couldn't come down because, well, we had to have someone tending the boat, and there's just enough boat traffic and things up there. It's not a place you want to leave your boat untended, okay? So, uh, when I got down there, I found this is actually a pretty pretty respectable shipwreck. Uh, It is turtled. It's... um, 
what I could measure was 85 feet long. So apparently more of it was in the mud than when Feltner dove at 1980. The uh, sides were much more visible, though, because I can tell from his wording that there was nothing visible uh, but, but the very bottom of the boat, 1980. But now all the sides are visible. The bow was visible. Um, it, there's a very remarkable centerboard trunk in it. It's kind of surprising that the, uh, the centerboard is in such good shape because it's so shallow. Uh, it's only 55 feet deep there. But, uh, you know, it was a, just a 100-foot-long-ish turtle boat. Uh, you actually could go inside it. I wasn't going to go inside it. I was strictly recreational diving. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, other preparation that has to go into planning a dive when you're going to do a wreck penetration. And going in by yourself is really not a good idea. Not recommended under any training schedule. So, uh, you know, I looked inside it pretty good from the holes that were there, but never went inside it. In any event, I was enough intrigued about it that I uh, decided to look into uh, learning all I could about the wreck and possibly trying to find a name for it there. Um, we came back from our honeymoon and uh, began doing a little bit of research and talked to a few different folks about it. Um, Brendan Baylod. A friend of mine who's uh, quite knowledgeable on shipwrecks uh, insisted that there's a good chance that that wreck was listed in Feltner's guide as one of the undiscovered shipwrecks in the Straits. And you know, there actually are 43 shipwrecks he has listed which went down in the Straits and have not been found yet. Um, actually, I think there's about four of those on that list because the guide was published in 1992. And there is ongoing research going in that area. So there are a few of them which have been found which are on that list now. But, uh, you know, I started looking at it and realized that, unfortunately, my, you know, 20-minute dive previously did not give me enough information to uh, really rule out many of the candidates on that list. And another dive was certainly required. But, of course, Straits of Mackinac is like 305 miles from my house. <laughs> so uh, we put together another trip. Now, Straits of Mackinac is a marvelous destination. In fact, uh, TripAdvisor has rated the Straits well, um Mackinac Island as the number one American tourist destination, well, the number one American summer tourist destination for 2018. Um, According to Google, they get one million visitors a year at the uh, Mackinac State at the Mackinac State Parks. Get one million visitors a year. Uh, it's anyone who's been there. We've all got good memories of Mackinac Islands. Well, when you're out there, you see so many foreigners, foreign tourists out there that clearly people all over the world have got good memories of Mackinac Island. There've been a number of movies been filmed out there. They kind of have it set up as a uh, 1880s Victorian era haven. Um, you know, they have a, the Grand Hotel, which a lot of their decor has kind of, uh, you know, gone to that Victorian era uh, theme. The I don't know the, the whole downtown area is a uh, Victorian area theme. You have a lot of uh, people working for the state park who are dressed. Uh, costume, you know, in pretty correct uh, costumes around, around that time frame. Uh, of course, there are no cars allowed on the island. Now, that's kind of a misnomer. Uh, 
that's what the, the popular storage of the island. There actually are a few cars on the island. There's an ambulance out there. Uh, there are some different EMS vehicles out there. So uh, if necessary, they, 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 they do bring the good old internal combustion carriage out <laughs> and go, go uh, put it to use. But uh, again, I was just surprised at such a popular area. There could be a shipwreck right there in the harbor, which no one had put a name on yet. And I started poking on a bit online in you know, conversations at a few of the uh, Shipwreck Nerd websites, Facebook pages. And I was looking to find out, you know, if there were more resources for naming shipwrecks or, or finding what, what had been previously named, discovered, uh, than what I was familiar with. I didn't want to go put the effort into researching and, and finding out the name of the shipwreck if someone had already done that before me. Because it's actually quite involved to identify a shipwreck. You know, the resources are available online. You know, uh, oh, University of Wisconsin has a great deal of stuff in their uh, archaeology department online. You can peruse a great deal of photographs. And uh, Brendan Baylod has some online resources as well. You know, we've, a lot of us start off with the uh, Great Lakes shipwreck file. If you ever... Uh, have a, a couple hours to kill, or even ten minutes to kill. Take uh, just Google search Great Lakes shipwreck file. Um, it's actually a uh, database compiled. I know Bryn Bale had a hand in that. David Swayze had a hand in that. Uh, uh, it's been kind of a, a project by a number of folks, and it's based upon the uh, registries and insurance records. Now, you had to have your vessel registered in the Great Lakes going back to oh early eighteen hundreds. Um, you know, yes, it was policed. You know, it's like having plates on your vehicle today. You know, all the ships out there were registered and had insurance on them, uh, liability cover. I don't think they had liability, but they certainly had, uh, you know, insurance for loss on them. And these vessels, uh, you know, their, their losses uh, created a paper trail, which Baylod and Swayze were able to go through and assemble this massive file on it. And just scrolling through the S's will take you about five minutes, okay? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, I want to say it's around 3,600 shipwrecks in that, in that database. There are other uh, databases since then, which are a little bit more involved too. But, uh, you know, each of these shipwreck registries, data entries will have the name of the wreck, the, uh, the builder's name, when it was launched, when it was lost, possibly some of the conditions it was lost under, other fatalities, uh, anything as far as where it may have been lost at. Uh, now, a lot of these wrecks that you find in the Great Shipwreck file were not truly losses, though. They may have been uh, temporary losses, you know, cause it, but, but something changed in the title. You know, the, 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 the ship may have gone aground, been damaged, but then was later raised and put under a different name. And now it appears as a loss here, but now the vessel goes on a different name. It's been, it's been basically been retitled to someone else, but that record ends at that point. So some of these are dead ends. But uh, it, like I say, it is a, a, a great start when you're looking to identify a shipwreck. So any event, uh, went through that to some other resources as well. Uh, you know, it's using Feltner's Guide. I have an, uh, an account with newspapers.com, which is uh, – 
very helpful for looking through old uh, newspaper clippings. There are several out of uh, the Buffalo area, Buffalo Commercial and uh, Buffalo Herald, where a couple of competing newspapers uh, throughout the peak of uh, shipping days on the Great Lakes, uh, you know, th- these things go back to the early 1800s. And they'll talk about the different uh, losses and collisions and strandings and all the things that went bad with, with the ships in the days. So I was using that, and I also involved a friend of mine, uh, Dan Friedhoff. He's a uh, local up at the Straits. He's also uh, secretary of the Michigan Water Preserve Council. He has a great deal of connections in the area. He's familiar with the libraries and the cataloging systems up there. And plus him being a local, he's able to you know gain access to a lot of stuff which has not been digitized and you can't find online. And his help was invaluable in this. Um, you know, so between him and Brennan Baylod, who uh, after I had decided what the ship most likely was and was putting a name on it there, uh, I found that the record for the dolphin was uh, especially convoluted. There were a number of different dolphin shipwrecks. Uh, there were five of them operating at the time frame of this loss. This boat sank in 1869. And there were, you know, at that time, there were five different dolphins in, in operation in the Great Lakes. Um, up to 20, actually, if you start counting the smaller personal craft out there, it got to be very challenging to discern, you know, which of these reports referred to which different shipwreck. I was trying to find a dolphin, which was a scow schooner, because when you dive this wreck, uh, it has the markings of being a scow schooner. The uh, shipwreck has a very flat bottom. It has a uh, retractable centerboard. The uh, sides of the boat, what we call the chines, are vertical. Uh, On a clipper bow ship, deep water boat, fixed keel, the chines, the sides of the boat are kind of sloping. The area where the side of the boat meets the bottom of the boat is known as the turn of the bilge. And a great deal of the skill which went into making a ship was making that turn of the bilge uh, graceful, yet strong enough to withstand loading and, and water, uh, you know, storms and docking incidents. Uh, a lot of work went into making that turn of the bilge graceful. Now, on a scow schooner, they were more of a industrial-built boat, and the area where the chines meet the bottom of the boat is much more of a hard angle. Not quite 90 degrees, but probably about 110 degrees, and they meet at a definite angle. There's not a lot of graceful blending of the, of the angle at that, right there. So these are things which identify what's known as a scow schooner, which was kind of the workhorse of the Great Lakes. Uh, the Rockaway, which is a popular dive out of the South Haven area here, was a scow schooner. I think the Havana may have been a deep water boat. I'm not sure on that. Uh, I'd have to look it up. But uh, any event, so we had a missing scow schooner found here now, unidentified scow schooner at the Straits of Mackinac. I knew I had to go back, started doing a little more research on it, and came up with a report from 1992 that had been put out actually by the Michigan Water Preserve Council. Um, regarding a bottomland survey. Apparently, they had received a grant from uh, Coastal Watch to do a uh, side scan survey on Moron Bay, which is the main bay in front of St. Ignace, 
It kind of goes to the uh, eastern side of St. Ignace and then Mackinac Island Harbor. And it, that mentioned the uh, shipwreck in question, which lies along the eastern breakwater in the harbor. It also mentioned another shipwreck not far from the western breakwater. And my thinking is that, well, if we're going to identify one wreck in the harbor, well, let's identify them both. Plus, one, if there's a press release made upon the eastern breakwater wreck, well, anyone can find the story in the western breakwater wreck, and they're questions will naturally be, what about this one? So we put together another trip to go up there for uh, from August 7th through 11th. Uh, we did four nights on the island. It's kind of challenging. The weather did not cooperate very well for us this time. You know, it was still beautiful, but, you know, to do diving, you need to have pretty flat water. And by the information on the second shipwreck in the, in the harbor, this lied along the western break wall, still inside the harbor. Now, the western break wall is actually the flyway for all the ferries. You know, there's a, there are two large ferry services, Starline and Shepplers, which operate out of uh, Mackinac Island. Uh, I think Starline, I want to say, has six boats. I think Shepplers has four or three. Um, it's really tough trying to side scan this area <laughs> with the boats coming and going. And we gave them right away and all. And we, you know, you can see, you can see them coming. You know, these are hundred foot long ferries, and you know they're visible from a long ways away. So when they're coming your way, because you know that the ferry wake is going to destroy your side scanning anyway, because you're going to be rocking and you know uh, two to three foot swells, and that wake goes by you. Uh, well, one or two foot swells anyway. The uh, you know you, you try to get out of their way, and. We found that some of the ferries were a little bit more cooperative than others. I'm not going to list names here, but there's one service up there I'm never going to use because the guys actually were bearing down on us deliberately. Uh, they didn't like us being in their area, and we try to get out of their way or at least get out of their lane, and these guys would play chicken with us. And playing chicken with a 100-foot ferry and a 22-foot Boston whaler is, is no fun, okay? It <laughs> didn't, go, didn't go well for us. Uh, but we did manage to get the area covered. Um, at the point, at that point, I was still missing one of the charts, though, from the report. The report from 1992 had a chart which detailed the locations of the different finds in the harbor, and there were several things marked out there, there which were listed verbally in the in the report, but referred to this chart that was completely illegible in the report. And this is one of the things which Dan was looking for, was to find a hard copy of that report. And he did the legwork on it. Uh, Dan's a real trooper. He uh, went through the list of contributors for the report. He found that uh, some folks had either passed away, others had left the area. Ones that were in the area didn't want to talk to him about it. and I'm not going to mention those guys. You know, this is a cool find, and their work led up to it. But I will mention Jim Montcalm, though. He was he had passed away, and he was a, a big contributor. But there are other folks who um, didn't want to talk to us. So guess what? I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to put, put your name in this thing here. So anyhow, um, did uh, Dan was able to locate the missing page uh, on the next to our last day up there which I believe was on the 10th of August. And we had side-scanned out there 
where the second shipwreck was a great deal. The problem is, is that uh, this has been an industrial harbor going back to uh, the late, you know, 1600s. Okay, I mean, uh, there's talk uh, with the Griffin uh, hunting about there being, um, you know, a great deal of fur trading going on in this area in the 1600s. Before that, we had First Nation people that were, you know, our American Indians. This was a very popular uh, summer destination for the American Indians before it was a popular destination for you know, European culture folks. Uh, American Indians uh, had, the, had a great deal of burial services on this island. They had a great deal of ceremonies on this island. It was a big place to come and do trading and meet with your neighbors. Uh, the American Indians, they also fought over it. Uh, you know, the American Indians in, in that area, actually most of them had come from the the West, uh, pre-European contact in the 1600s, and then had come here and then divided into, into other tribes. And those other tribes often met at Mackinac Island, which they referred to as the Great Turtle. And, you know, they had a number of big parties and big going-ons on Mackinac Island. It, it, it was part of their history long before it was our history. So... That's a huge history going on, going back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years in Mackinac Island. And it kind of shows in the harbor, you know, because you have a tremendous amount of artifacts out there. Uh, we were only looking for shipwreck-related artifacts. Uh, in that report, which, hey, Karen, man, you might want to download this thing. I'll send you a link. The... Uh, it does re- highly recommend that the harbor of Mackinac Island be used for an archaeological study. Um, you have uh, pre-European uh, contact artifacts potentially out there. You know, have all kinds, and I can see it. Uh, the side scans we show a large basin out there, just to the oh east of the western break wall. Initially, the water's in the 30s, and then it kind of rapidly drops off and, and bottoms out around 60 feet. And in that basin, all I can say is there's an awful lot of stuff. Uh, side scan picked up a lot of artifacts down there, mostly looking kind of like pier pilings and things. Couldn't really tell. We didn't see anything, though, which definitively looked like a ship. And, you know, when you're in an area which is going to be a challenging for a dive because of all the other boats around, you don't want to just start bouncing targets that are random out there. You want to know where your target is and you want to see something on the side scan that resembles your target you know, to make sure that it's worth the, worth the hazard and the challenge of making that dive. Uh, I did get the report from Dan on the afternoon of our last full day up there. And Amy and I went out there again and used the side scan to identify a couple targets which even though they did not look like a boat in the side scans, matched the description of being 34 feet deep. And suppose there was the bow of a ship, which in the report indicators off a small vessel, possibly 50 feet long. Now, we had kind of almost given up on doing this dive because we had not been able to obtain the report. And diving in this popular uh, ferry lane was rather challenging. We did, however, manage to get a dive in, another dive on the wreck along the eastern breakwater. Uh, this wreck was, um, you know, the one I mentioned earlier, and I made a much more detailed dive on it with, um, I took a probe along with me, 
knowing that the, the stern of the rack disappeared into the mud, I was trying to get a better length measurement of it. You know, when you're trying to identify a shipwreck, uh, length is crucial. That's a very important part of putting a name on a boat. And so I brought a four-foot piece of conduit with me. And actually, I probably should have brought an eight-foot, uh, you know, steel dowel instead, apparently, because I rapidly ran out of, out of conduit when I was poking in the bottom on the back of this boat. Uh, the boat does, the stern of it does go into the mud at a rather steep angle, is that the boat actually kind of lies in a drop-off and disappears quite rapidly into the mud. And I was, you know, 15 feet behind the boat, and I got my hands going down into the, the, the soft sediment, pushing down on this piece of conduit, and I'm still finding boat. I really didn't, I, I did, it was getting, you know, more and more firm as I went back, and I knew that I just was not going to be able to probe much further back than that. So I knew the boat was at least 100 feet long, but I couldn't get an exact length on it. But I kind of had some uh, some candidates in mind for what this boat could be. You know, according to Feltner's guide, there were a few there. There was the the Dolphin, which sank in 1869. There also was a ship Glad Tidings. Uh, Glad Tidings looked a lot more like a scow schooner than the Dolphin did. The Dolphin in the pictures really did not resemble the scow schooner. You know, it had a nice, graceful bow. Uh, it's actually a really, uh, you know, handsome boat in its day. Um, it's described as having a scorpion head which means that it actually had a scorpion as a figurehead on this ship. Uh, you can't see it in the pictures, but it is listed there in the registry as one of the defining features of the dolphin. Don't know why it didn't have a dolphin on it, you know, but uh, apparently they, they, they thought the scorpion looked better on the boat. Um, any event, uh, you know, I did poke around inside a little bit. I didn't go inside, but I stuck my head in there and shone the light around, looking for any kind of evidence of cargo, uh, which is another defining feature in a shipwreck, and I could find no evidence of cargo inside. I did, however, probe down into the mud because you, you actually could go inside it, and people have gone inside it in the past. There's a large hole in the port bow, which a uh, a, a diver can fit through, but you're going to salt it up really bad going through that hole because it's just not, you know, it's not like the crack in the Cedarville. This is a uh, hole that probably measures, uh, oh, it's probably about four feet wide, but it's only about three feet tall. It's right at the bottom, right at the salt line, and you're going to make a mess going in there. And, you know, yes, I've got a reel. Yes, I've got my, my rec penetration card and all that, but it just didn't make sense. Yeah, I had a bailout. I was diving with a HP, HP 100. Um, I had three lights with me. You know, I was considering it, but it just, no, it didn't make sense to go inside the boat, so I didn't go inside. Uh, but I did probe downward and found that there was a deck in the mud um, approximately three and a half feet down below the salt line. And there definitely was. So this was not like an open open hole barge. It definitely had another deck on it. Well, and it looked as though that the depth of the hold probably would have been around, you know, eight feet at the edge there and, and probably would have been a little bit deeper as you got towards the keel. But in any event, that's what I came to. Oh, I also took some measurements of the uh, keel itself. Had the uh, keel box measuring at 23 feet, and the distance from the most stern portion of the keel box to the bow was uh, 54 feet. And a lot of these measurements you can use to approximate a length, but it's really good to have an overall length when it comes to identifying a boat. Uh, it's very important I mean, because you're 
your approximations don't take into account for modifications. You know, a lot of these boats would, um, yeah, Derek is saying, we believe you, sure, yeah. Someone's going to challenge it, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. No, I did not go in, you know. Um, did Derek, Derek ask him if I went inside the boat in the chat room there? And No, I stuck my head in there. Um, you know, that thing, just giving it a dirty look, it would silt up. And I got a wife up top who, uh, you know, I got to come back to her, you know. And so uh, I, I try to avoid doing dumb things, you know. Uh, and the dumb things I do, I'm not going to tell you about. <laughs> but anyhow. Oh, so back to the wreck. Uh, so any event, I had taken all the measurements and pictures I could of the wreck along the eastern harbor wall. Now we also had targets on the Western Harbor Wall, which could possibly be the other shipwreck out there. Had no idea what it could be. So we had really bad weather. The um, forecast on our last night there was supposed to be uh, 22 knots out of the west, which ends up making it really, really rough there on the harbor. And I just didn't think it was going to be feasible to get a dive in. We also knew that the... The, the, the Mackinac Island ferries arrive at 7.45. How do we know that? Because the first ferry is kind enough to give you a complimentary wake-up call when they pull in the harbor. So every morning, 7.45, hey, I really like staying there in the boat, and I'll do it as often as I can. 7.45 a.m., though, you do get a <laughs> a large ferry uh, wake-up call in the, in the form of, a, of an air horn, <laughs> which uh, gets your attention any event, we knew we had until 7.45 to make a dive. So our plan was to get up at 5.30, evaluate the weather, and if it was diveable, go for, go for it. And was it ever. The gale of that night, the night of the 10th, never arrived. And it was calm and beautiful and placid out there. And so out we went. And uh, I had forewarned my neighbors the boat slip. One of the nice things about boat slip uh, camping is that uh, you get pretty cozy with your neighbors, but whether they're good or bad, you know, <laughs> they're not always good. Um, but we, we had some really nice neighbors up there. Um, neighbors, uh, Philip and Maria, nice couple. Um, they were celebrating their anniversary up there and uh, felt kind of bad at waking them up, but uh, I warned them and they were on board. What we were doing. They, they knew what we were doing. They thought it was kind of cool stuff. So 6 a.m., out we went. And. Again, Amy wasn't going to dive because we needed her up top to watch for boat traffic with the air horn and to be loud if necessary to get me to come back up. Um, I didn't know what we were going to find down there. You know, I had found uh, there were a couple of larger bumps on the bottom. Most of the stuff in the side scan looked very, very flat. I can tell you all the stuff in the basin did not have relief on the side scan. It was uh, showing as harder objects in the bottom, but my experience in the bottom of that harbor shows that the deeper areas actually have a significant amount of sediment on them. The more shallow areas are kind of blasted down to a hard rocky gravel bottom. The uh, deeper areas, you know, do collect a fair amount of muck. You know, apparently the algae out, the, the uh, fertilizers on the island are having an effect on the algae growth, which is creating quite a bit of muck in the deeper areas of the harbor, which is why the wreck along the eastern break wall has been getting more and more covered in, in sediment. In any event, so back to 
diving in the western breakwater the morning of the 11th, our last morning there, um, we had a point which I believe was going to be an anchor drop point, hopefully close enough to do a search area and find the bumps on the bottom. And uh hate to say it, when we dropped the anchor, it ended up in a hole of the bow of the shipwreck we were looking for. I mean, I went down that line and actually had to unfoul the anchor because it actually went, and the hole was already there. I know what you're thinking. Yes, it was, it was a hole there, and it had a quad guys all around it, so it had been there for a while. We didn't put a hole in it, but it, we hit the wreck that we were looking for, and it was such a relief to go down there and see that. And we had, I had 30-foot visibility and 35 feet of water, so great photo op. And it was a wrecking yard. There were pieces of boat everywhere down there. Uh, I saw Twin Keelsons, which uh, part which rides just above the keel on the uh, on the ribs of the boat. Which uh, wow, this looks to be uh, pieces of an engine cradle. Had huge bolts in it. Had other uh, specifically shaped wood to make an engine cradle attached to it. There, no metal though. Just well, there were bolts, but no metal plates. I was very impressed with how little metal there was out there. Um, apparently, this has been a very, very thorough salvage job on a steamship, a big steamship. The bow section we we're looking at was just the very, very bottom of the bow of a very large boat. But there was a great deal of wood around the bow on the bottom in in large sections. Uh, the other large sections around there. I believe are what you call the upper bulwarks. The upper bulwarks are an area of a ship. It's at the very pointy front of the bow. It's actually the raised section of the bow, which is a higher than the deck. It's designed so when the boat plunges into a wave, you don't get a huge wash of water over the bow. This upper bulwarks area is supposed to provide somewhat of a wall to at least minimize the water which washes over the bow. But everything I was seeing there... Uh, added up to being just the bow section of a very large boat and the wood pieces which would have been part of an engine cradle for a steamship. Not the 50-foot pleasure craft that the 1992 report had alluded to. Now, in all fairness, they did indicate they only had 10-foot visibility, which really does hurt your perspective on what you see down there. Additionally, it would have meant they probably would have missed the majority of the artifacts and the pieces down there. The only real large piece of metal I saw down there was an anchor. There was a, uh, well, it's it's a small anchor. Uh, It's a Navy-style anchor. The shank on it measures 3 foot 8 inches. One of the flukes is still embedded in the bottom. I suspect this was from someone's fishing vessel. Uh, smaller craft, I'm sure less than 50 feet. And seeing that smaller anchor, which appears in the report, probably is what gave the divers in 1991 the impression that this was a smaller craft. But looking at this, this, the, the, the size of the timbers on that made up this bow, looking at the size of the timbers that made up these, at, at minimum they were chines and I believe upper bulwarks, this was a significant ship here. This is not some little 50-footer. These are pieces of a much larger boat. So now we had two mysteries here to solve. 
Uh, we had pictures and documentation and measurements of two different wrecks in Mackinac Island Harbor. The uh, pieces along the western breakwater, the largest of them measured 35 feet long, and that was the section of Kielsen's. Uh, there were a number of pieces in the 30-ish range of measurement. Um, I, when I'm taking when I'm taking measurements, I run my, my, my video camera down there, and I video the measuring process, and then I zoom, I hold the camera very closely at the final measurement so I, I can always document, go, go back to that in my notes. Uh, the bow section measured uh, 23 feet long, but it was only a small portion. We're just talking the very, very bottom of a hull, an area which is always going to be permanently submerged underwater anyway in a boat. But uh, in any event, we had two shipwrecks to solve. So we come back to uh, you know, Bangor, Michigan, and begin doing a little research. Um, I had found that a uh, gentleman who lives, lives on the island who had kind of been watching my work had started doing his own research, and he started making comments on the shipwreck pages on Facebook about, you know, wrecks in Mackinac Island area. And I knew that it was going to quickly become a, a crowdsourcing issue. And I had some ideas of what they were, and I had a you know, pretty good idea what they were. Um, and so I did announce my findings a little bit soon. You know, I, I had the measurements to back it up, but not conclusively had I found documentation online to back it up. But I was, at that point, I was, you know, 60% sure on the western breakwater wreck and about the same sure on the eastern breakwater wreck. Um, in 1908, the steamer Peshtigo wrecked on Mackinac Island. Uh, Peshtigo measured 201 feet long, uh, was an older ship when it had sank, in 1908, I want to say it was built 1870-ish. Don't have the number on the top of my head. Um, but it also had a much older engine in it. The engine in it had been recycled from a, a wreck that had sank in 1868. Uh, this would have been a uh, single piston, possibly a dual piston. Uh, not, later engines were, by, by the time we're 1908, we're dealing with three-piston engines. This... Uh, but it had a very underpowered engine by 1908 standards. And it ran aground off of Mission Point, which is the point that is just to the east of the Mackinac Island Harbor. And there, for a while, was an area referred to as Peshtigo Beach on Mackinac Island off of that Mission Point. Um, Peshtigo, according to Feltner's guide, had gone to pieces their uh, the keel had ended up being buried in a landfill project. Doesn't mention a date, but looking at the maps and the details and the all the circumstantial evidence, it appears that the Pestigo keel had been buried uh, right on the edge of Mission Point in, a, in an attempt to extend their beach a little bit. You know, when you're in a high value real estate area, it's nice to get a few more feet of beach, and, uh, and that's what they did with the Peshtigo keel. Curiously, uh, there's no keel at the wreck site along the western breakwater. Uh, you know, keel and ribs is a section which we know, you know particularly they're made up, generally made out of white oak here in the Great Lakes, lasts a long time, and their absence was kind of curious on the wreck site. 
not to see those. Um, I definitely had the bow of a larger boat out there and remnants of an engine cradle. So Peshtigo makes an awful lot of sense over there. Um, what I believe happened with the Peshtigo, what I've been able to piece together, is that I do know that there was a wrecking operation dispatched to pull it off of the reef. When it went aground, I have my notes in front of me. I want to say it was, I know it was 1908. So I think it was September. I know it was late fall in 1908. Um, when the wrecking operation went to assist the Peshtigo, they had a laundry list. They had to get to four different boats before they did Peshtigo. And by the time they got to Peshtigo, it had already gone to pieces. Um, when a boat is no longer floatable, you salvage the pieces of it that you can and you know try to at least get some of your money back at that point on the hard parts of the boat. You know, pieces such as the windlass and the chains and the anchors. Those pieces are all in the bow area. Pieces such as the boilers, the piston assembly, the firebox, the plumbing inside. You know, uh, scrap metal had a significant value before World War II. Uh, after World War II, we you know were much able to much cheaper to make scrap metal, and well, no, to make steel, <laughs> and we no longer had to you know pay such a high price for it. But before that time, the, the, a great deal of salvage went on. Any event, uh, everything added up that what we had here was the salvage remains of Peshtigo along the western breakwater. Now, there's not enough wreck there to make an absolute determination of the being Peshtigo. The uh, you, you're never going to get a length measurement from just simply a bow. You're, you're not even going to be able to pr- approximate. A length measurement from a bow. You can just tell is it a big ship or a little ship, you know. But uh, you know, with it being a steamer and the lack of steamers which went down in that area, led us to believe this was Peshtigo. Now that was the easier one. The uh, schooner along the eastern break wall still needed to be identified. Uh, you know, Feltner's guide had a number of candidates, but Feltner himself in his book states that. They really couldn't identify this because they had no records of anything sinking in that area. And this is when he's examined the boat in 1980. Faulkner's guide came out in 1992. So they really don't have good candidates for what it could be there at that time. Um, you know, it looked and matched up with, I really was thinking it, this was possibly the dolphin. But researching the dolphin got quite difficult. And I involved Brendan Bela because he's real good at deciphering these mysteries and has he has archives which no one else in the world has. Uh, he has you know dock master reports. He has the Coast Guard um, wreck reports. He's got just <laughs> this guy's got everything. And I mean his library would be a history nerd's candy store. Okay, <laughs> I mean this is just incredible what he has. And uh, He's also had an interest in identifying the dolphin as well because it's been a real challenge to historians to separate the ones, um, you know, because you know, the, the different incidents would re- appear in the different on the other boats' registries, and it was just a mess. And he put the time into separating the timeline of the dolphins, and there actually were three of them that were operating at the same time in Lake Michigan, 
And yes, these boats all had different incidents and strandings and collisions and, um, you know, they, they, these boats always had, had, had little bang-ups going on. So he, you know, I, I really believe it was a dolphin, but I, at the point, I did not have a conclusive length measurement on the boat. And that was a challenge. But by the hull, by, by the shape of the hull, one of the dolphins, which Brennan verified, was the dolphin of Racine, uh, was mentioned as having uh, running losing its rudder at Point Pele in Lake Erie in 1865. And Bailed confirmed that that was our dolphin. Um, in the article from 1865, that dolphin is referred to as a scow. Well, this dolphin here is a scow. And we're able to use this to verify that the dolphin, which we have a picture at, picture of, in front of a grain elevator in Racine, and from, I believe, 1865 as well, is the dolphin we're looking at here. Because now it's, con it's considered a scalp. And we have the, the measurements of the dolphin of Racine as being 119 feet long by 26 feet wide. The dolphin of Racine uh, went down in a collision and was lost at Point Wagenschance in the Straits in 1869. Uh, it was a rough night, a mildly stormy night, and would have been no moon that night because of the storm running in the dark, and two boats went bump in the dark. I can kind of joke about it a little bit because no one died on, in this collision. The uh, Dolphin and the Badger State collided. Uh, some reports say July 6th. Other reports say July 8th. Uh, but they all agree on it was just before midnight, and it happened six miles east-northeast of the Point Wagenschance light. There were, no, there were no fatalities. Nobody died. And the crew ended up getting on board of the Badger State, and Badger State dropped them off at Mackinac Island of all places. And the Great Lakes Shipwreck file indicates that the dolphin may have been raised. And now the dolphin, when you look at what is six miles east northeast of Point Wagenschance, you're getting a little bit inland of the Maitland and the Sandusky area there. Um, those ships are at roughly 80 feet. So that's potentially relatively shallow for a wreck there. Uh, one report does state that it went down in 20 fathoms, which is 120 feet. Um, these guys really would not have known too much where they went down because it went down and, and it went down really fast. But if they had enough of a direction and to see the Wagenschanz light and know, because all the reports do agree upon six miles east-northeast of Point Wagenschanz. Uh, Wagenschanz is a lighthouse that uh, still exists today, but it's in really sad shape. It's actually one of the uh, lighthouses of Great Lakes in the most need of, uh, of a restoration because it's in really bad shape. In fact, a lot of people call it Point, Point Wobbleshanks because it was used as a, for bombing runs by the Air Force, uh, I believe, back in the 60s. So it's in pretty sad shape. any event, um, so we had a good candidate of a ship that – you know, it was 120, it was 119 feet long. Um, I had announced that already that I believe this was the dolphin there. And 
I didn't have a definitive proof of the length of it, though. I had approximate length, but not definitive proof. You need that when you're doing making a claim of a rack officially here. And, you know, I'm kind of pulling, pulling out what little hair I have left out to uh, get details on it. And my good buddy, Dan Friedhoff, throws me a Hail Mary. He uh, found in the uh, St. Ignace newspaper on the morning of August. Oh, that's actually the one that's supposed to come out today, but it actually came out several days early online. A looking back section of a diver, Jim Ryers, who was diving Mackinac Island Harbor in 1970. And they were going on a towed sled where they pull a, a uh, you know, a sled that goes underwater, and the diver holds on to that, and looking at the bottom, looking for looking for things, curious targets down there. If anyone has seen the big anchor, which you can see on Google Earth, that sits at the end of Starline Dock, Jim Ryers pulled that up out of that harbor. The rudder from the Barnum, which sits on display in St. Ignace behind the uh, the Ace Hardware Store, Jim Ryers pulled it off the pulled it off the Barnum. He also used dynamite to pull it off, so the whole stern of the of the Barnum is in pretty sad shape. But that's you know this went on back in the seventies. But he wanted the, the, him and his buddies wanted the public to see evidence of the shipwrecks, so they pulled the rudder up for it to be seen. Unfortunately, the, the shipwreck was damaged, but it did get more public interest in that shipwreck. <coughs> Excuse me, but. In any event, so I have an article from 1970 with Jim Ryers and several of his friends. I should probably pull up my notes here. I'll give you all the details exactly. But uh, they had uh, been you know, surveying the harbor, and they had found several wrecks out there. Well, they found several curious items out there, including a shipwreck along the eastern breakwater, which measured 120 feet long. So although I had been unable to get a high-quality length measurement, the vessel had been much more uncovered in 1970, and Jim Ryers had pulled up, oh, I'd been, I'd managed to, to get good measurements on it. It sounds like he may have also pulled the rudder off of the, uh, the shipwreck in the harbor which was on display for a while on Mackinac Island, but can't be found at this time. So there I had the measurement. And the measurement of the dolphin length, the dolphin number seen is 119 feet long. Um, you know, my wife and I, we put a lot into this. You know, uh, unfortunately, she was not able to dive these areas because, you know, she's not ready to do solo diving. Amy's a great diver, don't get me wrong. She's a little smarter than I am. She doesn't go solo diving, I do. But, you know, she maintained a safe presence on the boat while I was down below doing exploring and measurements. Um, and we put a lot of time into these, travel time and finances as far as getting there and back. Um, Amy had, had so, been just <laughs> incredible <laughs> assistance in this project here. And, well, she puts up with me on it, too. And, you know, us wreck nuts are kind of hard to put up with sometimes. But so in any event, we had fully identified the Dolphin Registry Number 6205 of Racine, Wisconsin. 
And, you know, like I say, this is kind of a team effort. Uh, I had assistance from a number of people on this here. Um, you know, like I say, Brendan Baylod had been just incredible for untying the uh, historical record on this. Uh, Dan Friedhoff had been real good about tracking down missing reports and missing pages and details. Uh, sent me that Hail Mary article there. Um, Amy had been a great assistance on this here. Uh, I kind of lost my gumption to dive in the harbor at one point because uh, when we got out there side scanning, uh, and the ferries were <laughs> not very welcoming of us being out there. I wasn't quite sure exactly what our rights were to dive in a ferry lane. So I called Donald Mack, you know, regular host on this podcast. And he put a lot of time into looking up what, you know, to find what uh, additional privileges passenger ferries have, uh, you know, should you be diving in a passenger ferry lane. And everything Matt could find indicated that if I had a dive flag in the ferry lane, they still go around it. Uh, did I want to test that? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but it assured me that we definitely had a right to dive there. So we just simply worked our dive time around their schedule and managed to get in the dives, managed to get the measurements, and managed to identify two shipwrecks in Mackinac Island Harbor. The shipwreck along the eastern breakwater is the uh, the Dolphin of Racine, number 6205. The wreck along the eastern breakwater, um, I'm about 80% certain. If someone can give me better certainty, I'd be interested, but uh, I'm about 80% certain that the wreck along the eastern breakwater is the the salvage remains of the Pestigo, likely uh, the wrecking crew that arrived too late, managed to pull the bow off of the, off of the boat, and maybe pull up the, the engines. They probably were uh, salvaged over the wintertime. And then the woodwork, which would have been pretty waterlogged and soggy, not good stuff to burn, was put out on the ice in the spring and ended up in the bottom of the harbor. So there we have it. Hope that wasn't too detailed and uh, too shipwreck nerd for you folks here, but uh, that's, you know, how you identify a wreck under ideal circumstances. It worked out pretty well for us. Well, thank you. That was a, a good story. I didn't even have to interrupt you or anything. And Yeah, I was waiting for you guys to, you know, say, hey, I lost you. Your, your <laughs> mic got... Atticky or Echoey again, you know, but... Uh, no, no, you, you covered it and, and laid it out very well. Okay. Uh, was it worth it? Would you do it Absolutely. again? <laughs> yeah, I would do it again. I might do it a little bit differently. You know, I would have probably brought a uh, a longer probe on with us. I'm going to try to I'm gonna try to find something telescoping. I keep in the boat, something that maybe might fold up. Um, I keep in the boat for a you know, permanent probe because, yeah, these things do disappear in the mud. Um, it would, would have been nice if I had good measurements from the get-go, but uh, you know we do have a lot of issues with sedimentation here in the Great Lakes and inland waterways as well. Um, unfortunately, with the everyone rushing to have these beautiful, nice green lawns, uh, we have a great deal of um, phosphates running up in our waterways. Which, the same way they feed your green lawn, they also feed the algae, and when the algae dies in the fall it makes a great deal of sediment on the bottom of the lake. There's a lake up in, um, it's a shipwreck up in Grand Rapids. I dive with some regularity that uh, bottom of Reed's Lake. And every year I will brush off a half inch of sediment on off of that, off that boat's rail. And that's just how the sedimentation is these days. Sedimentation in freshwater is supposed to be in the neighborhood of like a centimeter and a half per century. 
that's natural sedimentation. And we're getting, we're doing many times that these days, mostly due to the additional phosphates being, you know, feeding the algae. That's why we're hearing about the algae blooms. You know, some of these lakes are going to be, you know, soon there'll be bogs and soon they won't be even a lake anymore because they're getting filled up with algae and, and, uh, and bog material now. But anyhow, um, a lot of fun. You know, this is really cool stuff. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of rec work going on these days with Google Earth. A lot of people are, uh, you know, finding these wrecks by scanning Google Earth and then using the old archives, which you can find a lot of it online, and to put names on these things. Um, Brendan Baylod's Facebook uh, shipwreck group is a Great Lakes Shipwreck Research Group. And uh, I highly recommend anyone with an interest in shipwrecks. It's it's kind of a shipwreck nerd website. It's not some old, old Facebook page. It's not something for the average layman. Um, but if you have an interest in underwater archaeology, in uh, shipwreck documentation, it's there's a lot of good conversations always going on on this page about what's happening in the in the shipwreck world. So, well, thank right. you for for sharing. We appreciate that. And for those who haven't seen it, we've got uh, there's some Facebook pages. Is there some other spots, uh, Kevin, where somebody could see some of the details on the wreck? Well, if you look at my Facebook page, I have um, my Facebook page is uh, quite open. I don't have much of my lockdown on that. I do have a post on there, which I made uh, last night regarding this. Has, uh, you know, basically just the cliff notes of what I told you. Uh, has a, not many more pictures of the wreck, pictures of historical pictures of the wreck. Has uh, the screenshots of the articles, which I used to identify the uh, shipwreck. Now, this is all pertaining to the, uh, the dolphin of Racine. I do not have a post up yet regarding the Peshtigo. I started to combine them, but it was just too much information, so I'm making a separate post for each of them. But uh, I should post up regarding the Peshtigo here. I got to keep in mind, so it's Peshtigo, not Peshtigo. People in Wisconsin are going to ream me if I say it wrong, because <laughs> it's named after Peshtigo, Wisconsin. Uh, there actually were several Peshtigos, though. Um, there was another Peshtigo found last year. In, in the Straits, you have a wreck formerly known as a St. Andrew, which was the, the record on the St. Andrew indicates that it was in a collision with the Peshtigo, and both went both boats went down with the ringing still snarled. And there's a shipwreck at the Straits over near Sheboygan, which was identified as being the St. Andrew. We now know that it is not the St. Andrew because, uh, oh, gosh, the guy's name, he's on my Facebook. Maybe we can edit it in later. <laughs> it was found off of Beaver Island. The St. Andrew and Peshtigo, the schooners, actually lie off Beaver Island still with the rigging snarled. These two wrecks collided and went down together. Um, I don't think anyone died on those wrecks. I'm not quite sure. Um, oh, my gosh. I can't, I can't think of the guy's name that found these things here. It's on my Facebook. He's going to be reaming me. <laughs> oh, man. So I got to put it in the show notes at least here. So, gosh, he was, he was been helping me out here on some of the stuff too. So, oh, anyhow. Just adds to the suspense. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get chewed for not getting his name on here. I got to find his name. <laughs> so, anyhow. So, I'll, I'll quit.
but monopolizing the show. And that's what I have for you. Okay. We'll appreciate it. And hopefully everybody's enjoyed this story and what we're doing on Scuba Obsessed. If you're enjoying the podcast, we certainly could use your support. We understand that not everybody's able to, but if you are, you can head on over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over to our uh, Patreon page. And if you give us $3 or more, you get early access to our show notes. And uh, it also allows us to do things with the podcast that we wouldn't normally be able to do. We have lost some subscribers. You know, we can blame it on the pandemic or other situations. But if you're enjoying the program and you get any value from information that's on here, uh, your support would be greatly appreciated. You can contact us at the show at Scuba Obsessed. Or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash scuba obsessed on Twitter at scuba obsessed. Hey, hey, Darren, if I might interject. Yes. The finder of the Peshtigo and St. Andrew is Bernie Hellstrom. Okay. And he's a shipwreck hunter who's been doing this for quite some time. I'm also going to put a plug in for the guy. Uh, he's also the guy who found the Bradley, too. Okay. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, he never got he never got credit for that, but he is the guy who found the Bradley. But yeah, Bernie Hellstrom, he found the the the, the Peshtigo and St. Andrew still with their masts interlocked off of Beaver Island. And you can find more information out about that story online. I know that uh, you if you Google Bernie Hellstrom, uh, St. Andrew, Peshtigo, you can come up with the story. I know that John Jansen and John Scholes did a marvelous dive on that all the summer, last summer. And uh, it's been um, in the news quite a bit. So anyway, okay, I'm going on Rex. I'll shut up. <laughs> okay. Do you have anything else you want to plug before we get on out of here? Well, I want to remind everyone that uh, we need to support our local dive, local dive centers. The uh, We all like get those deals online. Those deals online aren't going to fill our scuba tanks or some of my service are regulators, but it's nice to have a relationship with somebody you trust that can service it, you know, that you know. Additionally, support your local libraries. A lot of this information we need for research is not being digitized, as I found out in the past few weeks here. Uh, please continue to support your local libraries. Vote for villages that give them, that, uh, give them funding. Uh, they're particularly struggling during this time of COVID. You know, a lot of them are closed and minimal staffing, and it's a real tough time for them. So be sure to support them any way you possibly can, because if they close, it's a tremendous amount of documentation, which will just simply go away. Very good. Well, I think we are to that time of the show. Are you Here it ready? Is. If I said no, would it make a difference? It wouldn't make any difference. All right, let's do it. Okay. Hit me. Okay, I, th- I think we're going to do a, a little warm-up, and then we'll do the 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 other one. Ne- <laughs> neither of them are exceptionally good, and they're just taken at a random order. But here we go. The drum roll. Yeah. So uh, th- this one happened when my, my daughter was a little bit younger than she is now. She uh, came to me all excited saying, uh, Daddy, Daddy, guess how old I'll be next month? I said, oh, I don't know, Princess. Why don't you tell me? She gave me a huge smile and held up four fingers. It's now three hours later. The police are annoyed, and she still won't tell me where she got him. Oh my gosh! <laughs> was that was that Wednesday, Adams? Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So so he, we're, we're we're moving up in jokes. I like that one. Like yeah. That one? <laughs> uh, 
there, there was a man, he's, he's leaving the bar and he's in no shape to drive. So he wisely left his car parked and walked home. As he was walking unsteadily along, he was stopped by a policeman. What are you doing out here at 2 a.m.? said the officer. I'm going to a lecture, the man said. Well, who's going to give you a lecture at this hour, the cop says. My wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Until next time, go out there and get wet. And for Max, stay safe. And for me, have a good time doing it. Later's all. Obsessed episode 400. He was recorded live blah, August 13. Yeah, that blah, doesn't blah, matter. Blah, you're blah. in a you're in a different channel. I can cut you out. Ah, okay, well you, they don't even you know. know. Yeah, you, you don't know how many episodes I do that to. You know, it's like, hey, we uh, Kevin only talked for two minutes. That was that was kind of nice. <laughs> hey, what, what am I even what am I even doing this for here? You know? I'm just gonna. That is an old reference. Uh, <laughs> okay, so. <laughs>